going? Good morning. I found out that Danielle plays the saxophone today. So that's another, another thing about Danielle that I didn't know. Well, no, not anymore we aren't. <laughs> I mean, now it's... it's, it's <laughs> I expect to hear a saxophone solo this Christmas. So, <laughs> hey, let's just, let's just pray as we uh, get started here. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, the, yeah, this gathering where we can just come together, open up your word, and where we desperately need your uh, spirit, Lord. As we wade into, you know, topics that are, that are I, don't, I don't know, I don't know if they're hard, Lord. They just are what they are. Um, but God, we just, we just need you. We need you, uh, Holy Spirit, to be present here. So, so come, Lord, speak to us. Build us up by your word. Encourage us, uh, I pray in Jesus' name. <sighs> All right, well, so happy to see everybody today. Uh, you're here on this, like, you know, you're the brave ones who decided to come to this, this new series that we're doing. Um, we're calling it Good News for Everybody, right? Yuck, yuck, yuck. Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Um, it's like we're going to be diving into the series, and we're going to be talking about how does the gospel... Um, what, what difference does it make to, to you as a person who, who has a body, um, as a person who, um, you know, has, has desires and, and is involved and, and you know, just, just is like alive? And really, this is just a way for us to think uh, carefully and honestly about the Christian sexual ethic, right? Because in the end, while, while, while the, it's not that everything we do in our body has to do with sex, but it's, it's, it's a part of being alive that, that we have uh, desires and that we have to consider what is it that we're called to do with our bodies. Um, we're going to ask ourselves, what does the Bible teach about our bodies? What does it teach about sexuality? Uh, what does it teach about, in, about the ways that we're invited to express uh, our desires uh, through sex and in what context, et cetera, et cetera? What is the Bible like inviting us to? And not only that, what is, what is it prohibiting us from, from doing? Um, so we're going to ask all those questions, but my real hope is that beyond all that, that we can go in and see how good God's plan is for our lives. Ultimately, that is, is the heartbeat behind this. Like, it's good news that we have bodies. It's good news that we're invited to, um, to you know, express ourselves and in, in, in to, to live in bodies. And we're just going to talk about all this. And I'm really going to make every effort not to be awkward in any way whatsoever. Um, it's hard. But, I mean, like, the kind of awkward I normally am. That's what we'll do. Because I am a little bit. I get that. Um, but I just, you know, want to acknowledge right off the bat, uh, and I feel this very, very deeply, that this is a, a complex topic, uh, not only because, not, not because Scripture is unclear. It's not complex because Scripture is unclear. I really don't think we can read Scripture and walk away with very much unclarity at all. I think it's very clear. Um, I'm pretty sure, honestly, if we did like a survey around uh, this room and we say, what does the Bible, right, asking this question, what does the Bible say about the Christian sexual ethic that we could get a fairly uniform answer? Maybe not 100% on all topics, but if I were to ask you that question, what does the Bible say about sex, uh, we would end up with something pretty close to what historically the church has, has taught and believed. I don't think that would really be hard for us to come to. But, but this is complex because each of us comes to the issues surrounding sex and sexuality with different experiences and different feelings and different assumptions, right? So we're all probably in, in different places. Um, <laughs> let me, I, I, and we feel that, I think, pretty viscerally. 
And I, I think that something that happened to me earlier this week sort of, sort of illustrates what I mean. I was, I was creating a graphic for this series. This is my second attempt at the graphic. Um, my first attempt, I, I thought, okay, I have the title, I want to create this graphic, and I thought, okay, like, what, are the, what is a good place that's kind of a visual that will capture the themes? And I thought, Adam and Eve, you know, because as, as we're going to go along in the, the series, you're going to find we're going to dive into next week into some of the creation account and what happened with Adam and Eve, um, because I think that is really kind of the basis for Christian anthropology, the basis for which we can talk about what our created purpose is and God's plan for our lives as embodied people. We would, we would turn to the story of Adam and Eve, and so I, I said, okay, I'm just going to find a picture of Adam and Eve, so I just Googled Google images of Adam and Eve, and there was a lot. I'm like, no way. Right? Because, like, this is a little too racy, and this is a church now. Um, but I found one picture, and I thought, it was, I, I thought this was it. I mean, it's still like, I mean, obviously, it's Adam and Eve in the garden. They're not wearing a lot of clothes or anything, right? It's this little bit. But it was from 1526. I, literally, a painting from 1526 of Adam and Eve. And I thought, if we can't handle this, then, then I don't know. I, and so I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to put it up there. So don't think, I'm, I'm not going to surprise you with a picture right now. I'm not setting you up. I just, I was going to do that. And then I thought, no, I can't even do that. I don't want to make you feel awkward. I promise you I wouldn't make you feel awkward, right? So I made this thing, put up this picture of Adam and Eve and, you know, wrote the text over it. And I thought to myself, yeah, I don't know. And so I, like a good, smart man, I went to my wife and she was like, no way. Immediately, no question. You, you can't do it. It's just gonna, it's just distracting. Like, it's gonna make people feel awkward. You just can't do it. And so, here we have this very bland graphic. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to, to the topic of sexuality in 2022. Like, like, we all have experiences, feelings, assumptions we're coming at this topic with, and it is, is, is creates a lot of reactivity when we think about and talk about sex and sexuality. Everyone has strong reactions. That's just life. Um, this is a complex topic. Um, and sex and sexuality, talking about it, has a way of drawing out visceral reactions from us. And I, I think it's for, for at least three reasons. Okay, the first is that sex and sexuality, by its very nature, is something that is deeply personal, right? That's what it is is. That's part of its beauty. It's also part of its, uh, I don't want to say danger, but it's the reason, part of the reason why we need to be cautious and careful with how we use it. It is deeply connected to people's ideas of what it means to be a person and to share of oneself. And people have known this for a long time. G.K. Chesterton, like 150 years ago, he said this, every man who knocks on the door to a brothel is looking for God, by which he means our pursuit of sex and intimacy is a deeply spiritual thing by its nature. Whether we acknowledge it or not, it is. We might not be conscious of it, but it is. So, so, so for our experiences and ideas to be exposed and talked about in, in a public way by some dude um, is a little bit of a vulnerable thing, right? And so it brings out and, and creates a sense of vulnerability, and so we react to that. Second, many of us have had experiences of sex and sexuality that have left us hurting, confused, and isolated. We just should, should acknowledge that that's true. So for anyone to talk about this stuff, it's going to perhaps be sensitive, because uh, we have wounds, 
And so like that's, I'm going to make every effort not only to not be awkward, I'll try, but also just to be sensitive to this stuff. Uh, please know if I'm saying something that sounds insensitive or flippant, it's not my intention to be that. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry. I'm trying to do this um, as seriously and maturely as I possibly can manage, and I don't want to be uh, callous in any way. I, I do want to consider people's feelings as we're talking about these things. And third, this issue is complicated, I think, really, because since the 1960s, the issues around sex and sexuality have become so politicized, and we are living in a highly politicized culture. So if we think through issues of sex and sexuality, it can come off to some people or be perceived as a political attack, a political statement, and that's not it. It's not what, what, uh, what I'm hoping to do. So, so this politicization of the issues, it just introduces us to this whole new sphere of reactivity and reactions that people have when we think about sex. So, here we are, walking through a minefield. This is fun. But with that in mind, I just want to pray. I want to pause and pray for a second. And just pray for each of us, for the Lord to give us courage, honestly, to go into this and, and, and open up our minds and, and consider what the Bible has to say about sex. Um, my prayer is that each of us would be able to seriously consider what is this biblical view without all that extra complexity, okay? So that's going to be something God's going to have to do. So let's ask him. Let's ask him to give us the strength to do that. Uh, so Lord, just, yeah, as we go into your word today and, and, and for the next couple weeks, Lord, we want to hear from you and listen to you. But the, the greatest obstacle to listening is, is just, I've already made up my mind. I already have these feelings. I've, I've got this, these hard, harsh reactions, Lord. We just want to set our minds before you and listen to you and open our, open our ears. Lord, give us uh, a measure of your spirit, Lord. Pour out your spirit on us today so that we might hear from you. Be filled with you, I pray, in Jesus' name. Okay, so what is the Christian sexual ethic? Um, Generally, when we talk about the historic Christian sexual ethic, we're talking about the, the limiting principles, the limits around where sex is allowed or permitted. We talk about sexual ethics in terms of what we can't do. And so it, by that perspective, which I, which I think is fair, by the way, I think this is probably a good articulation of the historic Christian sexual ethic. That is what the church has always thought about where and when sex is appropriate, and that's this. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be expressed only in the context of marriage, which is a lifelong, covenanted, exclusive partnership between one man and one woman for the sake of uniting and procreating. That's my best effort. There, there is not a verse where this comes off, by the way, in the Bible. There's not a verse I can go to say, this is the historic Christian sexual ethic. But historically, Christians have understood this to be an articulation of where and when sex is appropriate and, and the venue in which sex is allowed. And I actually probably could have added biological man and woman to this definition because, of course, we're in a, in a time of, of questioning what is a man and what is a woman. But I would also say that never, ha hasn't come up in the past because that hasn't come up in the past. Um, but now I, I think this is, again, like just sober-mindedly, I, I think if we were to ask the question of, of how have Christians understood the sexual ethic, this is what we would come up with. Um, and I just want to be clear, this is my view. This is the view that I hold to. This is the view, you know, of, of I-90 Community Church. I'm not, this is not a, a, a way to change this. That's not what this series is. This is a way to actually explain the whys behind this. I think it's worth considering why, because we certainly live in a time where this is a contested idea. 
So that's kind of the limiting principle, but I think also um, just, just focusing on what's, what's allow, allowed uh, or not sort of misses, I think, the heart of, of the Christian sexual ethic. I think, I think Paul articulates it well in 1 Corinthians. He says this, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin uh, a person commits is outside of the body. The person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. That is, I think, the, the most positive expression of the Christian sexual ethic. Whatever we do in our bodies, with our bodies, we're called to glorify God with it. That is, to, we are called to live lives with a knowledge that God exists. He's given us our lives and our bodies as gifts, and we are to steward them in light of who he is and what he has told us is good. The Christian sexual ethic of sexual expression, which are, which are variously in the Bible and we'll talk about over the next couple weeks, but it's, it's just more than that. It is an invitation that we have not just to avoid the wrong use of the body, but to walk into the good work of living as a place of welcome for the Holy Spirit and in a relationship with God himself in our bodies. The Christian sexual ethic is more than just not doing things that are prohibited. It is glorifying God with our bodies. But honestly, by um, articulating and sticking to this historic Christian sexual ethic, I am fully aware that I am taking the hard road, at least in this moment, in, in, in culture and in this time. Um, in the book, uh, Mere, Mere Sexuality by Todd Wilson, who taught a class that Ryan and I got to take um, last semester at Western Seminary, um, he explains what I'm sure that we've all noticed, and it's, it's this. Um, For an increasing number of Christians, the Bible's teaching about human sexuality no longer makes sense. At best, it seems quaint, like an antique that no longer serves any good purpose, what centuries of Christians have always believed has nowadays become a point of stumbling. So here I am. I'm trying to articulate a historic Christian sexual ethic. I'm trying to uphold it. But I am also aware that I'm speaking to people who, here we, here we are, we, 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 we're experiencing this. I think for a lot of Christians, some of this has become difficult to defend. But I'm actually here, you know, and hoping to tell you something and that's this, that what the Bible teaches about sex is actually good news. It's good news worth holding on to. It's good news for you as a person with a body, as a person with desires, as a person who desires to live a meaningful life in, the, in a relationship with God himself. The biblical sexual ethic, which is, I will grant, by its nature, limiting to some degree, is, I would argue, actually a gift it is a gift to have some limits put around sexuality, which is really hard for us to believe in our culture because we don't like limitations. Generally, we are hyper-individualistic. Uh, we consider limitations to be um, power structures, obstacles to human flourishing. The Bible looks at them entirely opposite. Interestingly, I, I think this is actually hard to believe for non-Christians, right, for the reasons that we've uh, articulated, but it's also hard to believe for, for Christians in ways that we might not expect. Let's see what I mean by that. Um, 
It's hard to believe that limits could be actually a gift, that there could be good news in the historic Christian sexual ethic, because, um, because those outside of the Christian faith look at the, the rules, the rules surrounding sex that they consider to be the, the biblical teaching, just a bunch of rules, and they would think it's all about control, right? They would think it's all about controlling people, about maintaining the status quo, about power structures, and that in order for people to truly be free, you have to rip up power and authority, right? So, so to, to, a, to a non-Christian, someone outside of the faith, they look at, look at these strictures, these rules, and they think, man, this is just about control. Um, and I could say a lot about that. I could, could argue that point very much. Um, we probably will later. But I don't think actually I really have to. I don't think I actually have to argue that that doesn't make a lot of sense because I think we're at the point in our culture and in the sexual revolution where the fruit is on the vine. You know what? Like, like we've been doing this for a long time, throwing off all uh, restraint and saying, like, let's just, let's just be totally free people. And I think the fruit is on the vine. The fruit of unrestrained living, especially around sex, is on the vine. We can see what's coming out of it, and I would say it's just not good. And I don't think it's just me who thinks that. Um, there was a very interesting piece in the Washington Post by a woman named Christine Emba on March 17th of this year. Um, she made the following observation about what she sees as the problems with uh, the contemporary sexual ethic. She says this, in our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good, and the more that we have of it, the better. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied to a relationship or marriage or our proclivities are personal and that they are not to be judged by others, not even the, by the participants. In this landscape, there's only one rule, get consent from your partner beforehand, but the outcome is a world in which young people are, uh, are both liberated and miserable. While college, uh, college scandals and the Me Too movement uh, may have uh, cemented a baseline rule for how to get into bed with someone without crossing legal lines, that hasn't made the experience of dating and finding a partner simple or satisfying. Instead, the experience is often sad, unsettling, and even traumatic. And of course, the failures of the sexual revolution don't necessarily prove the rightness of the Christian historic sexual ethic. But perhaps, and this is all I'm suggesting, we are at a point where we can reevaluate the biblical view and ask the question, might it be that some of these limitations, that these limitations are actually maybe helpful? Maybe they create a context in which we can enjoy sexuality and have it be a blessing instead of having it be uh, something that is, is yielding fruit that is not good. I would ask that question to somebody who, who is, is, is wondering about the, uh, the Christian sexual ethic. So it's hard for, for unbelievers to believe, but I think it's also an obstacle for Christians because Christians, I think, equally misunderstand the Christian sexual ethic. In the end, I think many of us has, have failed to grasp the point of the rules and the limits, which is a common problem among religious people. Jesus was dealing with that all the time among the Pharisees, and I don't mean to put people in the place of Pharisees because that's not a nice way to, to paint them, but Jesus was correcting this, this uh, issue among religious people all the time. One good example is Mark 2, 23. It's, it's a little story about Jesus and his disciples. On the Sabbath... 
He was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Sometimes religious people approach the rules in Scripture like, like, like the Pharisees did here. They said, God has told us we can't do any work on the Sabbath. We can't harvest any grain. Your disciples are just walking through the field. They're picking up grain and they're chewing on it. That's work. They're breaking the rules. God gave us those rules so that we would obey those rules. And Jesus replies, his reply about the rules is that they've, they've actually misunderstood them. They say, no, the Sabbath, the rules around the Sabbath, the rules that God has given was for man. Man doesn't exist for the Sabbath. God has given us rules in order to create a place where, there's, can be, where God can be enjoyed. What are rules for? Well, in, in this context, Sabbath was a gift to God's people, a day of rest, a day where they could stop from working, and a day where they could do the discipline of enjoying life. Because they, as well as most cultures around them, would just work all day long, every day, because if they didn't, they were worried they wouldn't have enough. And so God puts these Israelites into the promised land, and he says, you're going to work, but on one day you're going to do nothing as obedience to me, as trust in me, and so that you can enjoy me and my graciousness and my kindness and enjoy the gift of life, you are going to do nothing. God gave the Sabbath to his people so that they could enjoy the world, who, the world that God created and celebrate the one who gave it to them, so that they could live a life that was satisfying and they could celebrate how good God was so that they would cease to work and just rest. But the Pharisees took the rules, and this is what oftentimes we do, as ends in themselves. They were not rules that are ends in themselves, moralistic boundaries. The Pharisees thought of them as ways of separating good people from bad people, protecting people from evil. So the boundaries, the rules, and the limits, I would argue, are a gift, but they are not ends in themselves. They are the means for people of God to enjoy God and to enjoy what he's made. And that's what it is. That's the, the character of the historic Christian sexual ethic. I would argue it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing. It's not like, oh, you did these things, you checked off these boxes, good, you're on the right side. You're on the right side, you're on, you're on God's side. No, these things are meant to serve us so that we can enjoy the life that we have and celebrate God's goodness and the gift of, of sexuality to us, right? But within the confines that he set up because he knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. He knows what's gonna make for our life and for our flourishing better than we do. And I've proved that to myself over and over again. I don't know about you. Jesus said, John 10, I'm the gate. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved and I will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. If we're going to recover and celebrate the historic Christian sexual ethic, we have to understand that it is, as we do this, we are laying hold of the life that comes from trusting in Jesus. 
And it's an abundant life. It's a good life. It's a satisfying life. It's not a life of drudgery or prudery or all the other things. It's not a life about, about, about just control for control's sake. It is subjecting myself to the God who knows me and just saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you have my best interest in mind. I'm going to trust that you, as I follow you, are going to give me this life that you promise, and it's going to be an abundant life, a good life. Limitations can be good. And what Jesus invites people to is a way of handling your own body in a way that will equip you to be a flourishing person who is honoring God and who is becoming the person that you're called to be, that God has invited you to be. Now, with all of that said, and this is kind of the direction that we're going in, I want, that's just framing what's going to follow here in the next couple weeks. With all of that said, I do want to clarify some things. And I'll just say this, I love the church. I've grown up in the church. Um, not everything about it has been great, but I love the church. I will say, in the middle of all the cultural change that church has gone through since the 1950s, we have tried to respond in, I'll say, interesting ways, right? particularly around these issues of sex and sexuality. And at times, the church has tried to do things that I would say in the best estimation, they were clumsy, and in the worst estimation, they were trauma-inducing in terms of how we taught and framed these issues of sex and sexuality. And so now, as we're starting to talk about the biblical sexual ethic, I really want to just come here and say that there are a few things that are not a part of it, that do not have to be a part of it, that we've done in the past, that I'm saying, eh, I think that's missing the mark. Like, if we're going to affirm the biblical sexual ethic, we don't have to do these things, ways that we have tried to respond to a shifting culture in the past. And so I just want to tell you three things that I'm like, eh, if you're, if, you're, if you're nervous that this is where I'm going, I'm going to tell you, no, we're not going here, okay? So, so there's a, here's a list of some things that are not entailed in the Christian sexual ethic. The first is, is purity culture. Um, if you've never heard of that phrase, God bless you, you're in a state of wonderful ignorance, right? Um, but... Um, Purity culture is kind of, it's a bit of a buzzword right now, and it's a way of critiquing an approach to the way the church has um, approached teaching around, around sex and sexuality. And I would say this, the purity culture is about using shame and guilt and manipulation, emotional manipulation. That is at its worst expression, right? And, and, and there are plenty of people who had experienced this growing up in the church who felt like shame and guilt and manipulation were wielded as weapons to, to keep them from doing bad things. So that's what happens when we start to treat things, to treat this moralistically, like just boxes to check. We, we start to do these things, and we end up just kind of hurting people. Um, it, I, I, you know, it'd be hard for me to just tell exactly what purity culture is, but I can tell you a story that I think illustrates what purity culture is. And I read this in a book the other day, and I was listening to the book, and I was driving, and I had to pull over because <laughs> I was just so startled by this. So this is, this is kind of an example of purity culture. Okay, so it's from a book by uh, Dorothy Littell Greco. Okay, she, she, she explains that uh, she, she was uh, heard of a story of, of, of somebody going to a youth group, and the youth leader got a cup 
and they made everybody circle up and then took the cup and spit in it and then handed it around um, and had all the other students spit in it. Um, and this is, what she, this is the way she crowned it. When it arrived back at its starting point, the spit that everybody had, the, the cup that everybody had spit in, the leader communicated that premarital sect rendered everyone equivalent to the... to the contents of this now vile cup, disgusting and undesirable, teachings of this ilk rely on shame and fear to expunge sexual desire and corral sexual expression. This ain't it, okay? This is not, we don't need to do things like this in order to affirm that God has and invites us into a way of of living uh, that's full of blessing and self-control, the invitation to honor God's with our bodies does not come, does not need to come by shaming people, treating them like, like making them feel like they're less than. God is a God of grace and of kindness. He's a God of, of, of demands and rules and, and, and invitations which, are, which involve like restrictions, but those restrictions are never about shame. They're always about setting us free that there's actual true freedom in obedience to Jesus. And so we don't need stuff like this. And if that's been done to you in the name of Jesus, I'm so sorry. That was not right. Um, another thing that we don't need in order to affirm the Christian sexual ethic is homophobia. I want, uh, my definition of the Christian sexual ethic excludes homosexual sex, Right? Man and woman in the context of marriage. It, it, by, 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 by its definition, it excludes it. But we cannot treat people as anything less, with, with unkindness. It's just never, never permissible. People have dignity, and Christians should know that better than anyone else. And, and we've gotten into this place where we feel like, oh, if I tell someone that uh, God has an opinion about, about how you live in the body, that we think we're condemning them. I, I just don't think that's true. But we've sort of gotten to that because, because we haven't leaned into the awkward position of having to both love someone well, yet also not agreeing with everything that they practice. I really believe that what we need to do is to be... Uh, uh, Ryan talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago when he was um, kind of framing the issue, you know, like hospitality is a really good idea for Christians. Like it, we should be a church and Christians should be people who can love people who, who are gay and like care about them and have real meaningful relationships with them and introduce them to Jesus because this is, this, these are some words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 24 to 25. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his soul, uh, his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the Jesus we get to introduce people to. We're not asking people to do anything for us. We're saying, hey, look, I, I can introduce you to the one who, who taught me to deal with my own stuff and just bring my whole life before him and die to myself. And I actually found life in him. We can do that without 
being unkind to people or being afraid of people. We can do that embracing them the whole way, loving them, caring about them, praying for them, and just introducing them to the Jesus who's actually, who's actually making demands of them. We don't need to do that, though. We need to introduce them to Jesus and just say, hey, look, the only thing I have to offer you is a relationship with him. And I don't even have it to offer. He has it to offer, and he just sent me to tell you that he has it on offer for you. You want to go meet him? Go ahead. But Jesus is not a, is not, a not only in regards to sexuality, but in regards to anything about yourself. He is no respecter of the persons is the way uh, that historically when we were talking NKJV uh, times, you know, Jesus is not a respecter of persons in that he is not, he doesn't, he loves you and he sees you, but he doesn't like think, oh yeah, your rules are really important. He, he's a God who invites you to know him and to yield to him and to find peace in him. The church has been unhospitable to gay people. I was, for, for our, the class that Ryan and I took, we, we read this book um, by a, a guy who's, who's, who's gay, a, a celibate gay man who's a pastor. And he talked about in the 1980s when he um, was a Christian and when AIDS came, like the, the vitriol and the cruelty that came out of the church. Not just out of the church, the entire culture, I should say, but we should know better. We should be kind to people. We should be able to have relationships with people and to introduce them to Jesus. And then the other one other thing that's just not a part of this is marriage worship. I'm married, love being married. If we read the Bible, there's a whole lot of ways to be obedient to Jesus and not be married. I think we, this is a, a, it's such funny, I have, I have a guy uh, I went to college with, um, I follow him on, on Twitter, and he's been tweeting all week about, and he's, he's a total atheist, socialist, um, he's a very interesting guy, he's a lot of fun to talk to, we get into lots of good discussions, um, but he's just basically talking about how in culture, uh, he's, he's single, like unless you have, um, like all social relationships are built around married people or couples, and so if you aren't, you really have trouble finding connection and intimacy. It's just not, just not how the church should be. We've really focused on marriage the past 20 years, 30 years in the church, like celebrating it as, as we should. Like it is, it is valuable and good and, and like a great place in which to um, grow as people and for people to, to, to connect and to worship the Lord together. Um, it's important, but it is not the only way. Most people, it, it, it's one thing to say to someone, um, you, you like, like, like your sexual desires, like you actually need to exercise self-control over that. I, I have no problem telling somebody that because I think by the, the Bible makes it clear. It is a, another thing entirely to say your emotional needs for connection, you can't have that either. That's cruel. And sometimes in the church, we've organized things in such a way where only married couples get their emotional need for connection met. And the church needs to be better at welcoming in single people. If we're going to really be able to say what we're saying with integrity, I think. And I, I, I love I-90. Like, I have, I have made closer friends here, uh, and, and my wife as well, than I did in 10 years at my old church. It was like, this is a great community. We still have some growing to do in this respect. 
How do we welcome in single people? How do we uh, be good friends to them, deep friends, help people have emotional connections uh, that is not with a spouse because some people just aren't married, and that's okay, and we need to love those people well. Those are my little things I wanted to make sure that you know, like this is not where I'm, I'm pushing us, but I do want us to consider that this is really good news, that the historic Christian sexual ethic is good news. Um, the worship team is going to come up right now, and this was all introduction, right? This was, this was me just having to lay the groundwork for things that we're going to do. Um, what we're going to do, I'm going to tell you every week what we're doing next week. So if there's something you just don't want to be here for, that's okay. I understand. It's fine. I'm, I'm not embarrassed. But next week is like, this is like a green flag. You're fine. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, creation, Adam and Eve, and then the fall. Like, what does, what does sin coming into the world do to our bodies and do to our desires? It's not going to be awkward. You're going to be fine. You can be here. I'll, I'll tell you. Let me get the stuff that I'm going to be, like, up here, like, oh, yeah. This, uh, this, that's not next week. So I hope to see you next week. So but here, we're here. And we are setting off this morning, I hope, to discover something. We're doing something that, yes, might be a little uncomfortable at times. It might make us, um, but it might make us think, I think, and reconsider some things. It might even make us feel a little exhausted. Like, oh, I don't have the emotional capacity to think about all this stuff right now. Um, but I think it's worth it. Because here's the thing. We have to consider this big question. What is your life really for? It's, the, it's an important question for us to be living in all the time. What is your life for? What does God have for you in terms of like, what's going to make for your, 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 your flourishing, like, like, like a, a good, solid relationship with him? What's going to lead to that? And I would uh, say that the Christian answer to that question is, your life is for knowing God. Your life is for knowing God. That's your purpose. And everything you do with your body and in your life, it's meant to sit in that big context of your purpose. Christians have historically believed some things that are out of step with culture. This isn't a new thing. Roman culture, come on, you look at the culture of Rome, they had a lot in common with our attitudes towards sex. But despite all that craziness, despite Roman culture, um, the church went from, in that context of hostility and, and of, of just total freedom of sexual expression, the church went from a small group of people in the Roman world over the course of 300 years to being more than half the population of the known world at the time. And their offer to that world was, come, die to yourself. Come, like, subject yourself to some limitations, some self-control, because as you do that, as you take, like, these rules, things that to Romans seem so backwards and strange. As you get that, you actually get something so much better than what you were getting before when you had total freedom and license and were doing whatever you want. The Christian movement grew because they invited people to know God, to honor him and walk with him. And they lived in that place of knowing him. And it was so beautiful for the whole world to see that people just said, ah, whatever it takes. Like, I want this life that is working its way out in these people. That's the kind of life I want. We're inviting people. They were inviting people to walk with God as created people. To walk with the God who loves people and to walk into and know the God who has who created them and who offers them something so good and so beautiful. 
Christian love is the most compelling thing. It's the thing that brought that movement forward because Christian love is not like the love of the world. It is something so much more beautiful. This is a, a little quote from a lady named Melinda Selms. And this is, this is solid. I love this. I'm going to leave you with this. To excuse, to exculpate, just don't worry about that word, to understand and in understanding to sweep another's faults under the rug, to mutually exchange a kind of false absolution, this is not love. Love is terrible because it refuses to leave the beloved as she is. This nonsense, so often pandered in modern pop culture, that the lover is a, a delusional myopic who thinks that their beloved is perfect just the way you are, has nothing to do with love. Love is not a cult of mutual self-admiration. Love is a fiery sword that sweeps through the heart. It is a plow that tears up the acres of fallow wasteland and makes them ready to bring forth life again. And woe to all the insects who have made their secret layers in the quiet and the dark. Now that is some language right there, but I love it. Because the invitation into the Roman world and the invitation that stands now is Jesus saying, I love you, come and love me. And this love is not just, a, oh, you're fine, just go about your own business. It's come and be loved and my word will come into your heart like a sword. And I will make your life fruitful, bringing life and joy there where, where you've just been able to yield thorns, I'm gonna bring fruit and life and peace. The invitation to love, Christian love, is powerful, and we ought to consider it. Let's worship.